Hello, this is part three of episode 11. This episode covers the case of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. In part one, I covered Peter Sutcliffe's background and life leading up to the murders. In part two, I concentrated on the murders themselves and the victims, and also some of the attempted murders that Peter Sutcliffe committed. This part will focus on the eventual arrest of Peter Sutcliffe and the police investigation, as well as the actual trial. I will conclude with the aftermath of the police investigation and how it was deemed they could have handled the investigation better. Also I will cover the years and prisons that Peter Sutcliffe has spent since 1981 and the many incidents that have happened during his many years in prison. Peter Sutcliffe's known murder victims were Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Patricia Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Jean Jordan, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Richter, Vera Millward, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach, Marguerite Walls and Jacqueline Hill. Peter Sutcliffe's last murder victim, Jacqueline Hill, was murdered on the 17th of November of 1980. Peter Sutcliffe was stopped by the police on the 2nd of January of 1981. He was driving his car at the time and had a passenger with him. She was a woman called Olivia and she worked as a prostitute. She was 24 years old. The car was pulled over by the police in Melbourne Avenue, Broomhill in Sheffield, which is in South Yorkshire of England. A probationary police officer called Robert Hydes had noticed that the car had false number plates. Peter Sutcliffe was arrested and taken to Dewsbury Police Station. Once at the police station, the police started to question him about the Yorkshire Ripper case because it was noted that Peter Sutcliffe matched many of the physical characteristics that were known at the time. He had dark hair and dark facial hair and was of a slim build. It also transpired that when Peter Sutcliffe had been stopped by the police, he had asked to be able to relieve himself, which he had done and out of sight of the police at the scene. The police decided to go back to the scene of the arrest and have a look to see if he had got rid of any incriminating evidence. This would turn out to be a good call because they found a knife, a hammer and some rope that had been discarded. The police back at the station also found a knife that the suspect had tried to hide in the toilet cistern at the station. It was at this point that the police obtained a search warrant for his home at Six Garden Lane, Heaton, Bradford. They also brought his wife, Sonia Sutcliffe, in for questioning. Peter Sutcliffe was asked to undress so that the police could search him. They discovered that he was wearing a V-neck sweater that had been put on under his trousers with the sleeves of the sweater covering his legs and the V-neck exposing his genitals. The front of the elbows of the sweater had patches on to protect his knees. It would turn out that he wore this garment when he went out looking for victims and it was easier and more comfortable for when he was kneeling over his stricken victims. He must have looked a right sight when the police discovered this. Despite the mounting evidence, it would take two days of questioning by the police before Peter Sutcliffe admitted that he was the serial killer known as the Yorkshire Ripper. He confessed on the 4th of January of 1981. The next day, Peter Sutcliffe calmly went on to describe his many attacks over the years. The attacks that had left 13 women dead and between 7 and 9 women injured and many family lives ruined. 
A few weeks after he confessed, the Ripper declared that God had made him do it. He had apparently been told by God to go out and murder these women. The police noted that he only showed emotion when he talked about his youngest murder victim, who was 16-year-old Jane MacDonald. Peter Sutcliffe was charged on the 5th of January of 1981. He was charged with 13 counts of murder and 7 counts of attempted murder. He stood trial at the Old Bailey in London on the 5th of May of 1981. He pleaded not guilty to the murder charges, but guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He did to plead guilty to seven charges of attempted murder, however. The basis of Peter Sutcliffe's defence was that he claimed to be the tool of God's will. He said that he had heard voices ordering him to kill prostitutes. This had apparently happened when he was working as a grave digger. He alleged that the voices came from a headstone in the graveyard that he worked at at the time and that the voices were that of God. Four psychiatrists that had worked for the defence diagnosed Sutcliffe with paranoid schizophrenia, but the trial judge, Justice Sir Leslie Borum, rejected the diminished responsibility plea as well as the expert testimonies of the psychiatrists. The judge ordered that a jury would decide if Peter Sutcliffe was guilty or not. The trial would last two weeks and Peter Sutcliffe was found guilty of murder on all counts and was sentenced to 20 concurrent sentences of life imprisonment. The jury had rejected the evidence of the four psychiatrists and rejected the plea of diminished responsibility. A prison officer had testified that he had heard Peter Sutcliffe tell his wife on a visit that if he convinced people that he was mad he might only get 10 years in a loony bin. The trial judge stated after the verdict was announced that he felt Sutcliffe was beyond redemption and that he hoped he would never leave prison. He recommended a minimum term of 30 years before parole could even be considered. However, his sentence was eventually upgraded to a whole life tariff by the High Court in 2010. This means he will die in prison. The whole life tariffs were introduced by the government in 1983 and over the next 20 years a select few prisoners have been awarded the new tariff despite what they were originally sentenced to. A few of the prisoners who were subjected to this change are Ian Brady Murray Hindley, both now dead, Dennis Nielsen, now dead, Rosemary West and Peter Sutcliffe. The whole life tariff is only legal in England and Wales, not in the rest of the UK. After he had been found guilty, Peter Sutcliffe would admit to further attacks on women, but it was felt that it would not be in the public's interest to prosecute on these new charges. Peter Sutcliffe was regularly heckled and met by a very angry mob of people when he arrived at court and when he was driven away at the end of each day. People in the UK were very angry at the time and wanted to let their frustrations out. The Yorkshire Ripper had been active from 1975 until his arrest in early 1981. Women had been warned not to go out at night, especially alone, and to arrange for someone to go with them. The fear in the Yorkshire area of the country must have been huge and the fact that it was, went on for so long only added to the fear factor. After his conviction in 1981, Peter Sutcliffe began his sentence at Parker's Prison, which is on the Isle of Wight. 
Despite being found sane at his trial, Peter Sutcliffe was soon diagnosed as suffering from schizophrenia. However, attempts to transfer him from his prison cell to a secure psychiatric unit were blocked at first. During his time at Parkhurst, he was seriously assaulted by a fellow prisoner. The attack was carried out by a man called James Costello, who was 35 years old at the time, roughly the same age as Peter Sutcliffe was when he was convicting of convicted of murdering 13 women and attempting to murder a further seven. James Costello plunged a broken coffee jar into the left side of Peter Sutcliffe's face twice, which caused deep enough wounds that they needed stitching. He needed to have 30 stitches in his face after the assault. In March 1984, Peter Sutcliffe was finally sent to Broadmoor Prison under Section 47 of the Mental Health Act of 1983. Sonia Sutcliffe divorced her husband in April of 1994. Peter Sutcliffe was once again attacked. The attack happened in February of 1996, this time by another, by another patient at Broadmill. Paul Wilson, who was a convicted robber, had tried to strangle the Ripper with a length of cable from a pair of headphones. When Sutcliffe started screaming, two other convicted killers stepped in to rescue him. Kenneth Erskine, who was a convicted murderer and James Dovett, also a convicted murderer, managed to intervene in time. Bid Sutcliffe was attacked again, this time by a man called Ian Kay, who was a fellow inmate at Broadmoor. The attack happened in March 1997. Ian Kay used a pen to stab the ripper in his eyes. Sutcliffe lost his vision in his left eye and his right eye was also damaged. It was reported in 2003 that Peter Sutcliffe had developed diabetes and pictures that surfaced in the newspapers showed how much weight he had put on over the years. Sutcliffe's father died in 2004. The convicted killer was not able to attend the funeral, but he was granted a visit to the place where his father's ashes had been scattered. Sutcliffe was accompanied by four members of hospital staff, and the visit made the front pages of the newspapers the next day, and as you can imagine, people were not happy. On the 22nd of December of 2007, Peter Sutcliffe was once again attacked. This time, another inmate, Patrick Sarida, lunged at him with a metal cutlery knife. It was thought that the assailant was trying to aim for his eyes, but Peter Sutcliffe moved backwards and the knife instead caught him on the cheek without causing injury. Peter Sutcliffe launched an appeal against his whole life tariff in 2010. He wanted the possibility of parole at some point in the future. The appeal was heard by the High Court of Justice on the 16th of July of 2010. It ruled that Peter Sutcliffe will never be released. The appeal judge noted that he had traumatised a large part of Yorkshire for several years and that the only explanation for his crimes was anger, hatred and obsession. Psychological reports had been taken into account as was the severity of his crimes. It was ruled that Peter Sutcliffe will spend the rest of his life in custody. However, Peter Sutcliffe launched another lawsuit, this time against the decision that was made by the High Court of Justice. This new appeal began on the 30th of November of 2010 at the Court of Appeal. However, it was rejected on the 14th of January of 2011. On the 9th of March 2011, the Court of Appeal rejected a further application from Sutcliffe to appeal to the Supreme Court. In December of 2015, it was deemed by medical professionals that the killer was no longer mentally ill. It was decided that because he did not require clinical treatment anymore, he should be moved back to prison.
Peter Sutcliffe was transferred from Broadmoor Hospital to Frankland Prison in Durham in August of 2016. West Yorkshire Police were heavily criticised for being inadequately prepared for such an investigation. At the time, it was one of the largest police investigations by a British police force. It also happened before computers were used and it was acknowledged that it was difficult for officers to access information and other paperwork using a large manual system. And although Peter Sutcliffe was interviewed on at least nine occasions before his arrest, all of the information was not cross-referenced very well and they also had many tips coming in all of the time. Every time they held a press conference, it would generate thousands more documents. The report that was held into the police's handling of the case was called the 1982 Byford Report. The report concluded that the ineffectiveness of the police incident room turned out to be a serious handicap to the overall investigation into the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. There was too much unprocessed information that resulted in a failure to connect vital pieces of relevant vital information. It also concluded that the serious fault in the index system allowed Peter Sutcliffe to continually slip through the net. George Oldfield, who at the time of Peter Sutcliffe's arrest held the rank of Assistant Chief Constable, was criticised for being too focused on a hoax so-called confessional tape that had been dubbed a Wearside Jack. Suspects were often ruled out of the investigation on the basis that they had the wrong accent. It was also said that George Oldfield had ignored information from some of Peter Sutcliffe's survivors regarding the Ripper's accent. The Wearside Jack hoax tape played such a big part in the investigation and led to so much confusion. The report found that it was given too much credibility at the time. The official response to the whole investigation's handling of the case led to the development of the major incident computer application, MICA, which would be used in future cases. Also, the general public reacted to the way that the police had handled the case by holding marches. The Leeds Revolutionary Feminist Group organised marches with the slogan, Reclaim the Night. The group also were vocal in the criticism of the police and accused them of victim blaming. And they also accused them and criticised them for saying that women should not go out at night, especially alone. In relation to the possibility that Peter Sutcliffe was responsible for other attacks that he had not been convicted of, that was considered by the Byford report as well. The report concluded that it was highly probable that Peter Sutcliffe had committed other crimes, but no evidence was available to charge him at this point. The Byford report also highlighted the fact that a tip-off from a friend of Peter Sutcliffe's, a man called Trevor Birdsall, had not been followed up on. An index card had been created on the basis of the letter and despite the fact that there were already three existing cards in the records regarding Peter Sutcliffe, for some reason the letter and cards remained in a filing tray in the instant room from the end of November of 1980 until Peter Sutcliffe's arrest in early January of 1981. On top of that, having sent the letter to the police, Trevor Birdsall visited the police station in Bradford to repeat his misgivings about Peter Sutcliffe. Apparently, a report on the visit was 
somehow lost and even after a comprehensive search was never found. The Byford report stated that the failure to take advantage of the new potential evidence in relation to the letter and the subsequent visit from Trevor Birdsell was yet again a stark illustration of the decline in the efficiency of the so-called major incident room. It would result in Peter Sutcliffe being at large for more than a month longer than he needed to be. However, luckily he had not seemingly committed any further attacks during this time. So overall, the investigation that looked into the so-called failings highlighted many concerns, mainly the amount of paperwork that was not properly cross-referenced, the false hoax tape that had been taken far too seriously, even to the extent of excluding people on the basis of their accents alone, and the potential tip-off from Trevor Birdsall, who had been a friend of Peter Sutcliffe's at the time that the murderous attacks were being carried out. Over the years, there had been quite a few changes in personnel at the head of the investigation, but George Oldfield seems to be the one police officer who was most heavily criticised for his so-called blinkered view on things. Some junior officers also stated that they had tried to pass on concerns to senior officers, but were not taken seriously at the time. The police eventually established who had sent the hoax tape into the police during the Yorkshire Ripper investigation. The man's name was John Humble. He was born on the 8th of January of 1956. He worked as a labourer at the time. 25 years after he had sent the hoax tape, and as it turned out later, three hoax letters as well, John Humble was arrested. The arrest happened because eventually three letters were linked to the tape, and in 2005, when a re review was undertaken to try and find the hoaxer, a small piece of gummed envelope from the letter, the original seal of the letter, had been located in a lab in London. The decision was taken to analyse the paper for any possible DNA. They found enough to be tested. The DNA profile that was obtained provided a match to an existing profile in the database. John Humble was identified. He had had his DNA take, taken in an unrelated incident in 2001. He had been arrested for drink driving. Although John Humble admitted he had sent the letters and the tape, he denied that he had committed any crime. He was charged with four counts of perverting the course of justice. Apparently, John Humble had liked the idea of the notoriety of being involved in the Yorkshire Ripper case. He also had a hatred of the police and a fascination with the Jack the Ripper Whitechapel murders that had taken place in the late 19th century in London. It would later transpire that John Humble did in fact phone the police twice but did not give his name to indicate to them that the letters and tape were all a hoax. He said that he did this because he felt guilty for misleading the investigation. The calls were discounted, which does not come as any great surprise considering how badly the investigation was being handled back then. The call had been recorded, but the police said that they had received lots of hoax calls to the police station during this busy time. The first time that John Humble had phoned was just after the murder of 20-year-old university student Barbara Leach. She was the first victim since John Humble's tape had started to influence the police investigation. 
John Humble went to trial at Leeds Crown Court on the 9th of January of 2006. He eventually admitted to the crime and pleaded guilty to four counts of perverting the course of justice. He was sentenced to eight years in prison but was released after only serving four. He died in July of 2019 from heart failure. Peter Sutcliffe is still alive and serving at out his sentence in prison. George Oldfield, who was the officer in charge for most of the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry, retired from the police force in 1983 due to ongoing ill health. He had already had two heart attacks by this time. He had suffered his second heart attack in 1983 and had been off work for many months before taking retirement. George Oldfield died on the 4th of July of 1983 at the age of 61 after a long illness. This part concludes this episode of the case of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. I hope that valuable lessons have been learnt of the many years since this case was solved. Hopefully people's attitudes towards some victim groups, namely sex workers, will have improved over the years as well. They did not ask to be attacked by Peter Sutcliffe. They were just, in some cases, trying to earn a little extra money for their family. Some of the women had nothing to do with sex work at all and two of his victims were only 14 and 16. The young girl that was attacked, called Tracy Brown, was just walking down a country lane close to her home. She was 14 years old. Luckily, she survived. The other really young victim was 16 years old, Jane MacDonald, who was just walking home in the area close to where she lived. She unfortunately did not survive the attack. The signs pointing towards Peter Sutcliffe at the time did not appear to be that strong, at least on the face of it, but if more care and time had been put into solving the case with suspicions being acted on, maybe he would have been looked at more closely as a suspect, who knows. It does sound as though the police were overwhelmed with information, so maybe they did the best that they could at the time. If you do not have enough resources, and some of the resources that you do have are not up to the job, then the job is going to be that much harder. The main police officer to come under fire after the conclusion of the prosecution and committal of Peter Sutcliffe was George Oldfield, who at the time was assistant police constable and the main lead investigator on the case. However, the lead investigator had changed a few times over the years, so others also had a responsibility. Also, George Oldfield was not always in the best of health. I personally believe that although the onus was on him to lead the investigation, other people below and above him had a duty as well to apprehend the serial killer. The tip that came in from Trevor Birdsall should have been looked into, especially when it was discovered that Sutcliffe had already been questioned by the police on more than one occasion. It was ultimately concluded that too much emphasis had been given to the now-proven hoax tapes, and George Oldfield did appear to be sure it came from the killer, which was a huge mistake. I'm glad that John Humble was prosecuted for what he did and spent time in prison for the crime. It should act as a deterrent to others thinking of trying to mislead a police investigation. Peter Sutcliffe had a history of violence, even if it did not actually get him convicted at the time. The police were aware of incidents between him and prostitutes going back as far as 1969. There are a number of attempted murder cases that are believed to be connected to Peter Sutcliffe that were not covered by the trial. 
but the Crown Prosecution Service have deemed it not in the public's interest to try and prosecute him. He will never be getting out of prison and he has suffered with many attacks from other inmates over the years. He has limited eyesight now, he is diabetic and considerably overweight now, so who knows how long he will last now. As always, the most important people in these cases are the victims themselves and also their families and loved ones. At least the killer was found and punished even if it did take a long time to achieve. I hope that the many children that were left without a mother because of the evil man called Peter Sutcliffe have somehow managed to live productive, safe lives. The scars must be very deep when someone you love has been brutally taken from you and I also hope that the survivors who had been physically attacked have managed to heal and try to overcome any problems associated with the attack. Credits for this um, part of episode 11 go to wikipedia, murderpedia.org, allthat'sinteresting.com, which is a website. Thank you very much.